It's another delightful and joyful opportunity that we have this evening to assemble in the name of our God of heaven with express purpose and no other the desire than in fact to carry out the service in a way that would magnify his name and in a way that would bring glory and homage to and reverence to in fact that greatest of all names, Jesus, the great Son of God. And so it is this afternoon as we come together on this occasion, you may have noted in the bulletin uh, that the title of the lesson is Being a Peacemaker and we shall give consideration as you might have noted in the reading, Brother Randall read just a moment ago from one of those Beatitudes, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. What might be some thoughts that might in fact direct our way concerning the issue of peace, both in the way in which it should occur as taught in the Bible, and some practical ways that you and I can encourage its presence in our lives. As we give thought to that tonight, some introductory features might first be in order, perhaps to, in fact, point us in the direction of just a few of the significances that attach to the subject of peace. The gospel is, in fact, the gospel of peace, isn't it? That marvelous refrain of Romans 10:15, in which beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Those such as yourself or me that proclaim and preach the gospel of peace it in fact is the central message of the matter of peace for the human family. In fact, I would ask that we lay some significance to that as we give thought to what is the most rudimentary reason and the most rudimentary source that allows for peace in life. We'll begin the lesson in just a moment by delving somewhat deeply into that. Another matter of introduction might well be this. Jesus often spoke of peace, didn't He? To whom else might we turn to learn about peace than He? To whom else might we turn to, in fact, not only learn about the importance of it, but those practical ways, again, that you and I can help it to exist in our lives? And so, as we give thought to that matter of peace, let's study about being a peacemaker. As we do that, one of the first things that we shall bring to our thinking this evening is in fact some notes about what peace is to start with. It would certainly be of benefit to us to carefully define it, to have some identical note of it in our mind so that the subject of peace might clearly be set before us. Likely the definition isn't anything too shocking. Peace in fact directly refers to a state of tranquility, a state of quietness, a state in which one appreciates a freedom from disquieting or oppressive thoughts or behaviors. Perhaps finally, one might note it's a harmony in personal relations. As you think about the matter of peacefulness and the characteristics of that definition, doesn't some of these matters directly follow from it? We are aware of the impressive need for peace. Our government often speaks of it whether it be the desire for it in the Middle East, or perhaps in Africa, maybe in fact in Southeastern Asia. But we also appreciate it from regional standpoints between various portions within a country. Furthermore, one can speak of it with respect to smaller groups such as families or churches. And of course, there is that inward peace that of course all of us wish to know personally and individually. Whether one speaks of it from any of those perspectives, the questions remain the same. How do you make it happen? Where does it come from? What is the place or source to which one can go 
and find the words that can guarantee. And you'll note I said guarantee, not just suggest it, not just lead toward it, but can guarantee its existence. Thankfully, the Bible has much to say about this, and it is to that Bible we shall turn and learn again about peace and about making it. You'll notice how often peace occurs in the Bible and how often it's discussed. 450 occurrences of that word or some derivative of it in the King James Version of the Bible. 450. And in fact, that Greek word, irene, as you can see written there, 105 occurrences of it occur in the writings of Paul alone. It is significant then for us to notice the New Testament speaks much about peace. And we shall frequently turn to it and look at those passages perhaps anew and revisit the reality of peace and what it is that can go along with making it happen. You and I, even if we aren't directly related to it, I suppose even indirectly, we know what happens when there is a famine of peace in the workplace, in the home, in the church. When there's no peace, there is tension. There is strife, there is disruption, there is faction, there is division, there is unsettled character, there is infighting. We each know that that is no desirable place, no favorable place to be. No wonder peace then is something that is so often sought. And no wonder it's something that so often is a yearning matter in the lives of so many and in the existence of many groups. For that reason, look at just a few of the things found in Scripture concerning it. In 1 Peter 3, verse number 11, Follow after things that make for peace. Ensue it. That wording of Romans 14, 19 reminds us that you and I are given commandment to follow after those things which in fact are involved in peace. That's a direct commandment, isn't it? Just as surely as the New Testament is filled with many other commandments, that too is one of them. Follow, he said, after the things which make for peace, and that wherewith one may edify another. In another one of those passages, in Romans 12, verse 18, a passage that perhaps has often been upon your mind or mine, Paul on that occasion wrote, If it be possible, as much as life in you, live peaceably with all men, that text that Randall noted for us earlier, one again of those Beatitudes, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. That's just a small sampling of those passages that speak of peace, but aren't they clear enough to remind us of the importance of it, the urgency of it, the need for it, and the scriptural relation to it? For that reason, might we begin our study a bit more in depth. First of all, Answering the most important question, where do we find it? If peace is of such great need in the family, in the church, in the nation, and yet in any other group that intends to be productive, one should immediately ask, but where do I find it? May I submit to you that Books A Million Bookstore up here, there are dozens of shelves filled with books with human instructions on supposedly how one can find peace. The Library of Congress, there is no telling how many books are there. With instructions and guidelines and directives, 
the sole goal of which is to feel that hollowness inside and make you or me a person of peace that knows the tranquility and quietness of life, that fully is able to appreciate his or her placement here and knows satisfaction and contentment. Again, there seems to be no end of those directives toward that goal. May I submit to you that we should turn to this book first and foremost and ask, what does it prescribe and teach about the source of peace? As we begin to look at some of these passages... The source of peace, thankfully, is laid out for us very clearly and laid forth for us very directly as well. There is no ambiguity. There is no uncertainty. There is no lack of clarity. But rather, we notice some of the following things. The words of our Lord in John 14, 27 is where we shall begin. This was the very night prior to our Savior's crucifixion. It was the night prior to His great events that next day in which, of course, He would give His life, not for Himself, but yet for all of our sins. Oh, what a day it would be. Think about the tumultuous nature of what might have been the case in His mind, knowing the scene of the cross was but a mere hours away from Him at this point. In fact, knowing that Gethsemane was even closer than that. And yet, what did He say? John 14, 27, the Savior again said, Peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you. And as the Lord made that reference to peace, one might immediately begin to ask, in that shadow of the cross in which He made that statement, and in the affairs of what would be the case over the next several hours, how could He have made such a statement? My peace I leave with you, And he went on to say, This is peace not as the world giveth, but give I unto you. The world, you see, isn't the source of peace. It never has been. It never will be. The Lord here said, with that possessive adjective, My, He was the author of peace. Two chapters later in John 16, 33, the Lord again made an interesting statement. He said, These things have I spoken unto you that you might have peace. The express purpose for his making those statements near the close of John 16 was for those apostles to appreciate, to inculcate into themselves the issue and nature of peace. These things have I spoken unto you that you might have peace. In the world you should have tribulation. But be not afraid, I have overcome the world. The Lord made the statement, didn't he? that the world would be the placement or source of difficulty and tribulation, but yet He would be the one to give peace. We already seem to have learned something dramatic, that Jesus is the ultimate author of peace. Let us look even further. You'll notice in Philippians 4, 7, the great apostle Paul joins in the chorus, if you please, in which here he says, And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through through Christ Jesus. The peace of God shall keep your minds. He even went on to say again that it fully passes the ability of our major appreciation and understanding. But it is the peace of God, isn't it? Finally, you might note with me Romans ten fifteen. That text we noted earlier, the gospel of peace. Might we remember that on that occasion, as Paul made reference to the hearing of the gospel, the belief of it. 
he was making reference to the blessedness of those who live it and preach it in fact the fact that it is the gospel of peace. Do you and I think as oft as we should of the fact that we are the ones who have in our possession the gospel of peace? We have the authorship of it in the sense that we can help share it and help others to come to know it. If they want peace in their life, this is the primary textbook. All of those to be found in the library in Cookville, the help would be minimal compared to the help available here. So many times those matters that lead to inward trouble, they could be fixed if they could only appreciate God's forgiveness. And the character of the fellowship of the church and the understanding of what happened at Calvary, that would go a long way toward fixing so many personal problems in life. Is it not easy to see that all these subjects about peace lead us right back to the focal point of the Christ? He is the Prince of Peace, isn't He? He is in fact entitled that in Isaiah 9, 6. Among the other things that He has as title there, Wonderful, Counselor, we remember He's also the Prince of Peace. He's the giver of it, the author of it. In fairness to that point, we should even revisit the opening book in the Bible. In Genesis 49.10, There as Jacob near the time of his own death, he made reference to the Shiloh, which was a great and powerful realization of the one that would come down the stream of time, the Christ, the one who would be, of course, the great possessor and the giver of peace. It's interesting in thinking about any of that to maybe recall one of the statements that Zechariah made, the father of John the Baptist in Luke 179, that this one, this Christ, this babe that was shortly to come, would be the one that would guide us into the way of peace. I would submit in conclusion to this opening part of our lesson, the source of peace is the Christ, and the world will search in vain in its effort to find peace if it does not search to Him. All the books ever written apart from the Bible will not provide one the ultimatum, the reality, and the finality of what peace can be, where it's to be found, and the great reward that accompanies to it. But maybe we should look even further. In 2 Chronicles 15.5, we have one of the most telling passages in the entirety of 2 Chronicles. Here, even in the days of the Old Testament, it was and still is to be noted that without God, there will be no peace. In fact, if you'd like to read the first five verses at some point of that chapter, we learn again that there was a prophet named <clears throat> Azariah. And in fact, as the various prophets made their statements, on this occasion, the prophet had the nerve to directly tell King Asa, you and the kingdom of Judah enjoyed prosperity and peace when you in fact sought God. But when you forsook Him, He forsook you, and there has been no peace ever since. Doesn't that speak volumes about the nature of a nation, even perhaps our own current climate in America? Without the pursuit of the things of God, and without the basis of God's commandments as the basis for the livelihood of the nation, there will be no peace. Not now, and not until there is a pursuit of those things godly. May we note that in fact the prophet of old stated it very well, didn't he? 
But maybe another lesson directly comes at this point based on that. In the Scriptures, we find a remarkable attachment, association between peace on the one hand and righteousness on the other. In fact, it would seem as if they are intimately joined. Let's see if we can understand that association a bit more deeply. What is it about righteousness and peace that go so closely together? You might notice that Isaiah 57, verses 20 and 21, the last two verses of that chapter, point out for us a remarkable passage and, in fact, a remarkable truth. In fact, those two verses remind us about the nature of the wicked and the absence of peace with them. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. I would ask each of us to think about that again. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Those who thus live in the way of wickedness, those whose lives are not directed in a way of godliness, who have no interest in nor reliable foundation on the matters of righteousness, the text reminds us there's no peace to the ungodly. You and I might quickly ask, but isn't it true that so many in the world seem to be satisfied? They seem to be at contentment. They seem to know something of peace. But yet the ancient writer, Isaiah, said that it's only a facade. It's a silhouette at best. It is merely a covering over what inside is reeked with sin, reeked with ungodliness and iniquity, and thus is separated from its Maker, and thus does not have the most fundamental of all associations with God Himself. There is no peace, saith my God to the wicked. The previous verse to that one, again, verse number 20, speaks about how that the troubled waters cast up mire and dirt. Isn't it interesting that at times, water, it can look so clear, it can in fact look so pristine and so appropriate and so enjoyable, but yet at other times, perhaps after a rain or after a storm, when in fact the deeper currents have dragged up the, the soil and sediment from the base, the water is then murky, it's cloudy, it no longer is clear and is desirable. The ancient writer said, that's the life of the wicked. Oh, it may flow along like water, but now it's cloudy. Now it's unfit, you see. Isn't it amazing to note that kind of description and that kind of vivid imagery from the days of the ancient past? However, the text has much more to say. In Psalm 85, verse number 10, in fact, that unity between peace and righteousness is so close that there the writer said that peace and righteousness have kissed each other. That's a remarkable closeness, isn't it? Righteousness and peace are so closely and intimately connected and joined, they have kissed one another. May that always remind us about the greatness of righteousness. For in your life and mine, there will be that dearth and famine of peace unless our lives are based in righteousness. Thus, during those times when we seem to feel a lack of peace. We maybe begin to feel chaos and we begin to appreciate a frenzied and harrowed character of life. Could it well be because we have stepped too far aside from the source of peace and that righteousness is no longer the descriptive of our life? Maybe we should think very carefully 
look very deeply into the mirror of God's Word and ask, am I allowing the world too much leeway? Is the devil far too much in control so that righteousness is not as it should be in my life and therefore my life is not one of peace? It is a fair question, isn't it? Maybe that's the answer to how the Savior could know peace as He approached the cross. Here was a man knowing that nails were going to be driven into his feet and into his hands, knowing that he would be scourged, knowing that a crown of thorns would be plaited so firmly upon his head. He knew all of that, and yet he could approach his heavenly Father in Gethsemane, and he could pray, and he could understand the greatness of the aid that God would be with him and for him. It is a remarkable thing to notice. Perhaps you and I have known individuals who were able to approach even harrowing situations in life, dangerous circumstances, but with a peace and comfort that comes with being in a relationship with God. Is it any wonder the psalmist could say, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For Thou art with me. Thy rod and Thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's Psalm 23, verses 1 through 6. And how many times during the course of those six verses is there at least a reference to peace? Through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear. Why? Because thou art with me. There was a contentment and a peace and a satisfaction to life that the psalmist enjoyed because of his association to the God of heaven. Wasn't it true that Jesus came, among other reasons, in order for you and me to enjoy peace with God? In Ephesians 2, verses 13 to 18, we find a number of verses in which that thought of peace is so highly regarded. And it is set forth as the thing that is so beautiful and needed by all of us. It it began in verse 12 by helping us to remember this fact. At that time you were strangers from the covenants of promise, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, having no hope and without God in the world. Isn't that a despicable place to be? No hope without God, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, far removed and apart from association with God. But next verse begins by turning the table. But now ye who sometimes were far off have been made nigh by the blood of Christ. You who formerly had no hope, now you have hope. You who formerly were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, now you're citizens in the kingdom of God. You who formerly were in fact strangers from the covenants of promise, now you are those who've made covenant with God. All of that's found in those two verses. But he went on to say that by the bringing of peace, Jesus took the middle wall of partition out of the way. That which separated, that which divided, and now he's made all of us one in Christ. That's a lovely sentiment with regard to peace, isn't it? No wonder as we look at all of that, it perhaps might well be noted 
that it's wickedness in so many ways that brings anxiety and worry, and it brings the reality of a troubled life. We noted in our lesson this morning how that sometimes individuals think so often about the past, what perhaps they did or engaged in in former days, and perhaps the thoughts of that haunt them from that point forward. Sometimes the character, whatever those sins may have been, can loom like a dark cloud so many years. Isn't it true that sometimes as you and I read newspaper articles or read other kinds of news stories, those who chose to have an abortion, they are never able to forget the life that they snuffed out. They're never able to come to grips with ultimately the decision that they made. Maybe others who engage in other kinds of immorality or other kinds of evil. Perhaps when they come to their senses, they then are bowed in despair, realizing the magnitude and enormity of what they have done. May we notice, only can one find comfort from that kind of thing in the forgiveness that God offers. All of self-help books on earth cannot replace the commandments concerning forgiveness available from the God of heaven. And that's the only way that kind of peace is ever going to be known. Is it not fair also to say concerning the examples of some of those like David? So many things might be appreciated from the events of David's life in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. There was a man who at that point in life seemingly had everything. He was the king of Israel, united Israel we might note. Furthermore, he was one who had all of these things at his disposal. Servants, empires, kingdoms. We notice in that chapter though that he looked upon Bathsheba. He and she committed adultery and it was a downward spiral from there. We notice that he attempted to cover up his sin. Have you ever noted in that chapter how that David seemingly was not at peace any longer? Up until chapter number 11, we find a man who seemingly was at peace with his God and at peace with himself. He was a man who in fact was contented and was satisfied, but then suddenly he was agitated. Suddenly we find in that chapter and afterward that there were matters not right. He tried to cover his sin with, of course, the events of Uriah. Even Joab had to be brought into conspiracy with him. And all the while, David was a man not at ease any longer. We finally find in Psalm 51 how ease came to him again. He confessed his sin. He begged God for forgiveness, and God forgave him. And may I submit to you today that's still the only way that that kind of peace in life is going to be known. Isn't it lovely then to think about the peace of God that passes understanding, Philippians 4, 7? Perhaps one final set of ideas. If it's true that righteousness and peace are so powerfully connected, that means that peace goes together with right living. Living a rightly. It is important thus for us to train that conscience in a way so that we will be bothered when we do something we shouldn't. That that teaching that perhaps our parents have instilled in us will come back fully to the forefront of our mind and we will be bothered by those things that we do or perhaps leave undone. We notice that means, think again, there's a lacking of peace and that is a reminder that we need to come back to God. 
It's not he that moved, it's we that moved. We are the ones in need of reconciliation to him. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 18 and 19. In fairness, you'll notice that Psalm 37 verse 37 makes a powerful personal remark about living rightly, living in faithful character. And it is based on that that Paul was able to say in Romans 5, 1, Therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, because we're justified by faith. If you and I thus are not living by faith, justified by faith, sanctified by the character of what Christ did for us, then there is no peace in our life. Not ultimately, not basically, not the peace that really matters. Is it not a frightful thought to give thought to one of those matters, such as something Stephen Hawking stated just the other day? Maybe you've heard about Stephen Hawking. He's one of the most famous scientists currently living on earth. He, in fact, lives in England and sits there at Cambridge in one of the most exalted professorial positions at the university. In an interview just a few days ago, he was asked the question in that interview about his position or his thoughts concerning heaven and concerning life after death. Keep in mind now, one of the most highly respected scientists, physicists I might add, on earth. His reply to that described both of those things, both heaven and life after death, as a fairy story. It is not credible, he said. It is not something on which to base one's character and one's life. It's only a fairy story. In his words, perhaps a good myth, a nice story to read to a child, but it isn't truth, in his mind at least. It isn't reality. Can you think of a worse scenario in which one could live? A man who is brilliant in science or in math as he might be, and yet is so ignorant of the teachings of what brings peace, so unknowledgeable of the thoughts of what ultimately is the basis for his association to a God whom, by the way, he will stand before in judgment someday. We know on that occasion that he will be quick, of course, to recant as much as possible all that he ever said, but there shall be no opportunity then, for it will all be written in the book. God has a perfect record of all the man has ever done and said, and on that occasion it shall be brought to bear, and he will give answer for the deeds done in the body. 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 10. Nextly, in our lesson tonight, we come to point number 3. In addition to the first two points, namely the source of peace, namely the Christ and the teachings of the Scriptures, our second point, the reality of the fact that righteousness and peace go hand in hand. We come to point number three. It is the clear teaching of Scripture, isn't it? That it is God's intent that peace reigns supreme in the home. The home should be a place where peace exists. And a place where peace is to be found. And a place that lifts high the banner of peaceful living. In this last part of the lesson tonight, let's look at just a few of these matters. Because isn't it a tragedy? that there are so many homes in our world today where peace is not to be found. There is infighting. The children are at odds and at one another's necks, if you'll pardon the pun. The parents are at war with the children. The children are disrespectful and at odds with their parents. 
It is a place where tension reigns supreme. You can understand why in so many cases people have no interest in going home because they get there and it's nothing but anxiety and it's nothing but hardship and fighting and quarreling and squabbling and shouting and yelling and screaming. There's no peace to be found there. But yet God desires there to be peace in the home. He has given us passages that teach that the home should be a place where a husband and a wife, where a child can come home from the worries and difficulties of the day to a friendly and confined relationship known for its peacefulness. Consider just a few of these passages. In Proverbs 17 verse 1, as well as Proverbs 11.29 and Proverbs 21.9, all of them make an interesting and descriptive way of thinking about God's statements concerning peace in the home. Now in all those instances, the writer Solomon stated it in a somewhat interesting way, but nonetheless the point is clear enough. The home should be a place where peace is to be found. A place where peace is to be seen. Clearly that peace is motivated, or should be, by the reality of love existent in that family. Love on the part of the parents for the children. Love on the part of the children for the parents. Love of the husband for his wife and of the wife for her husband. Love that exists among the siblings in that family or any others that may dwell, let's say, in that family, be it grandparents or other members otherwise. In Colossians 3, verses 19 to 21, Paul, in fact, gave some very clear instructions concerning some things that will make for peace. For one thing, husbands shouldn't be bitter against their wives. On another level, fathers ought not provoke their children to anger. There's certainly a place for correction, a place for discipline done rightly and properly. But fathers ought never to particularly discourage them. In the sense of conducting oneself by way of teaching or example toward them in such a way that there's inconsistency to say one thing and do something else. That only discourages them because then they're confused. They don't know which path to pursue. Dad said one thing, but then he did something else. A parent thus ought not be given to that kind of behavior as it would be in discord with teaching. That, of course, would not make for a peaceful situation. A child needs to understand the boundaries allotted to him or her and to be expected to live within those boundaries. To step outside perhaps brings correction, discipline, and punishment. Isn't it amazing? Perhaps in light of that, that we're admonished in 1 Corinthians 7.15 to make our homes a place known for its peace. Are you and I striving toward that end, that goal? Are we striving toward the reality of a home in which the peace that's to be known is just a foretaste of the peace that shall someday reign supreme in heaven? Many of us perhaps have known that kind of home and we're thankful for it. And we are currently striving, of course, to make our home that way. May we never give up the fight to make that home a place for its peacefulness so that children and grandchildren, even great-grandchildren, will appreciate that what exists in that home is in fact completely opposite to the tribulation of which Jesus spoke available in the world. Our world teaches in, in its inconsistencies. 
it sets forth its matters that are so troublesome in many ways. Sometimes the news bothers you to watch it. Sometimes maybe we should watch less of it because it causes us to be in dire straits concerning the sore allotment of the current affairs in our world. May we, in fact, strive to make a home of peacefulness. And may we do that by living in righteousness and always turning to the source of peace, namely, the character of the great Word of God. We'll continue our study of peace next Lord's Day evening by making it a bit more personal. What can you do and what can I do in a real way to make our home a place of peace? To make our workplace, at least as far as you and I have any input, a place of peace. To make our classrooms or otherwise a place where peace might well be found. As we look forward to that, we'll base those teachings on the things we've learned this evening. It might well be there's an individual in the audience tonight that upon reflection knows that your life is not one of peace. You understand that. Maybe you didn't even need the scriptures to tell it. You sensed it. You knew there just something isn't right. May I submit to you, perhaps the basis of it is your broken relationship to God. That which is amiss is the fact you are not a faithful member of His kingdom. Maybe you were at one time but no longer are. Why let that state of affairs persist? Why not come back tonight to your first love and to do so in haste and in urgency? We're going to stand in just a moment and sing this hymn of encouragement. It is a time, it'll take a step of courage for you to come forward, but it'll be a step and you can leave tonight feeling complete because you're complete in Christ, Colossians 2, verses 3 and 10. You can leave forgiven because forgiveness is found in Christ, Ephesians 1, verse 7. You can, of course, leave with the ability to pillow your head, knowing your relationship to God is secure, and so is your soul, Mark 8, verses 36 and 37. If tonight we can be of assistance to you in praying for your forgiveness of those sins, or maybe in your initial obedience to the matter of the plan of salvation, there will be never a better night than this one. Hear the word of the Lord. Believe Jesus as the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His master's name as the Son of God. And allow us to assist you in baptism. If either of those things would tonight be the need of your life, why not in fact make things right with God this very night? And to begin that, as together we stand and as we sing.